You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Harry was really good at chess. I don't mean that in a casual way, either. Harry was tried and tested in dozens of large tournaments and proved to be incredibly good at it. He started playing at the age of 15 and, over the years that followed, became a master of the game. In 1895, he managed to become the United States representative in a British competition known as the Hastings Tournament. Most of the other chess players there were a lot older than him, and there's a rumor that they were a bit rude to him. It might have had something to do with his age, sure, but it was more likely to be connected to the cigars he smoked while he played. Whether or not they liked him didn't matter. Harry beat them all. I'm not going to sugarcoat this story. Harry didn't live long. He passed away in 1906 at the age of 33, but he left behind a legacy that still makes people scratch their heads today. Not for his typical victories in normal chess competitions, though. No, Henry built a reputation for something entirely different. Group matches. He would sit down with a number of other chess players, each with their own game board and pieces set up, and then play against all of them simultaneously. It would often take place during an official tournament, when many of the players had the day off, so these weren't just random players off the street. He was playing groups of the best chess players in the world, all at the same time, and he would win. Once, he sat down with a group of 16 players and beat 13 of them. Another time, he played against 21 contestants at a German tournament and managed to record 11 draws, 3 wins, and 6 losses. It was incredible to see, as many people recorded. One player managing to think through and compete with a dozen or more high-level opponents at the same time? Well, it was amazing. His best match was in Moscow in 1902. There he sat down with 22 tournament players and beat all but one of them. If he hadn't died four years later, there's no telling what else he would have been able to accomplish. Henry Nelson Pillsbury was a phenomenon, and not just because he beat so many players at the same time. No, as if that weren't enough of a handicap, Henry managed to secure all of these records with one additional limitation. You see, he played each and every one of these group matches seated in a chair, facing away from his opponent's boards, while others called out the moves to him. Henry Nelson Pillsbury wasn't blind, but he played each of these games as if he was. (music) 
William was what you might call an explorer. He grew up at the end of the 19th century at a time in America when war was raging across the state of Kentucky. No, not that kind of war. This was the Kentucky Cave Wars, which was a sort of competition between the people lucky enough to own land over large cave systems who wanted to sell tickets to tourists. Honestly, it was like a lot of things in life. If there's money to be made, people have a tendency to get competitive about it. But of course, this was a pretty odd business opportunity. If you owned land with access to a cave that people could walk into and look around, you could sell tickets for admission and make a living. Except in Kentucky, there are a lot of caves. William was 37 years old and lived on his father's land in central Kentucky. About a decade before, he had discovered a cave on the family property there and had begun selling tickets to visitors. But there was a problem. The more popular Mammoth Cave was easier to get to, so it had the majority of the business in the area. Not one to be deterred, William formed a plan. If he could find another entrance to his family's own cave system, perhaps even one that was closer to the foot traffic near Mammoth Cave, he might be able to increase their business. So William went exploring, and in 1925, he found something promising. He called it Sand Cave and set about exploring it properly to make sure it would work for all his goals. On January 30th, though, he was crawling through a narrow part of the cave when his lantern went out, leaving him in the dark. Normally a very careful man, William accidentally kicked a large boulder, which somehow rolled onto one of his legs, crushing it and trapping him in the dark. His brothers and friends tried to get him out, but failed. Rescue workers failed as well. A local college offered to send their entire basketball team, but the offer was politely declined. They did their best to keep William's spirits up and brought him food and water. But at the end of the day, he was trapped in a small cave, and that horror wasn't about to just go away. On February 4th, six days after becoming trapped, a group of men took him a meal. And on their way out, the entrance to the cave collapsed. William was still pinned beneath the boulder, but now he was also cut off from the rest of the world. His rescuers began to dig down from a different location, but it took them 10 days. When they finally broke through and reached him on February 16th, he was already dead. It took William's family another two months to retrieve his body, which they buried on their farm on April 24th of 1925. And then... Oddly, the entire family sold the farm two years later, moving away and leaving the family cemetery behind. The new owner, being very aware of the story of William's death, saw a business opportunity. He dug up the explorer's body and moved it to the cave there on his own land. He even had a glass box made for it so that everyone who visited would have a good view, like the curiosity it was. It sat in its glass case for nearly two years, but in March of 1929, someone broke in and stole William's body. When it was recovered a week later, the damaged leg was missing. They had the corpse put inside a metal coffin, secured it with chains, and then placed it deeper inside the cave. It stayed there until 1989. There might be a silver lining to all of this, though. When William became trapped in the cave back in 1925, the media went wild. Historians believe that roughly 50,000 tourists came to the cave during those two weeks of agony for William. 
They bought food and drink from the local vendors and then visited other nearby caves. Over 50 reporters traveled there as well, each one hoping to write the great account of the ordeal. William Floyd Collins was a star for a while. The result was an explosion in public awareness of the Kentucky cave system. In 1941, the U.S. government declared the entire Mammoth Cave area to be a national park, protecting it for future generations to enjoy. Each year, over half a million people step inside and do a little exploring of their own. Safely, I hope. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.